Hey, this is Dan Blewett. This is episode 33 of Dear Baseball Gods. So, I've been a little bit infrequent this past month, and I apologize for that. I only had two episodes of the show in December, and that was just because it was just a tough, tough month for me as far as just my professional workload. So, I'm super excited. I just finished my first online course, which, if you don't know me, you know, I obviously I just retired from baseball in, in January. I officially uh, hung up the cleats, um, you know, stopped my attempt at coming back for 2017. So after that, you know, there was this grieving period and then quickly my work ethic that I had applied to baseball for so long just shifted gears and I, I wrote my book, which I'm about to start back into the third draft, um, also called Dear Baseball Gods. It's about my career and I'm excited about that project as well. Um, and as soon as I got done my second draft, I just started thinking about my professional life going forward and somehow I got onto the uh, online course platform. So I quickly whipped out a massive course that's called Ace of the Staff. It's uh, It turned into a whopping, I think, 83 videos, which is mind-boggling to me that it grew that big in this amount of time. And I actually had to rein it in because I was suddenly trying to pull everything out of my brain all at once. And uh, so it's seven uh, course modules, which the word module is very strange to me, but, you know, kind of chapters or whatever you want to call them. And it's about holding runners, uh, creating pitch sequences, you know, how to read hitters. It, it's the, the mental side of baseball. It's not teaching pitching mechanics, not teaching velocity. And it's, and it's done that way because it's a gap. You know, there's tons of stuff out there on mechanics and velocity. And um, I'm really passionate about all the stuff that I learned in my last three years, especially in baseball, where I had to become better despite not getting physically better. So that project is complete, and I'm getting ready to, to, to launch it soon. So that has just consumed me, and I have two great speaking gigs coming up, uh, the Illinois State High School Baseball uh, Coaches Association in two weeks, and then the ASMI Injury and Baseballs Clinic the following week. So i got to finish up those presentations this week, and it's just been you know great time getting back to Baltimore, seeing family, all that stuff. So anyway, I'm excited to get back in the show, and uh, I do not have a guest tonight, but what I do have is a really great email that um, you know, my heart goes out to this dad. I'm going to reply to him, but at the same time, I wanted to share some of his email because I think, I think a million parents could have potentially written this email to me because it's uh, something that we see here at Warbird Academy, you know, with kids, you know, the family dynamic around a young athlete and the way they're nurtured. You know, I just sent an email out to my, my email list a couple of days ago sharing three articles about the parent and player relationship. And I think it's really important, and I'm, I'm really fortunate that I had great parents who gave me what I needed uh, during my career to succeed, um, you know, and I had no control over that. I was just lucky. And so I'm going to talk about a little bit of that tonight. So the, uh, it's, my topic for tonight is some of the coaches that I had throughout my career and how they affected me and some of this issue in you know, how coaches affect players in general. So I want to share kind of some of my stories that I think will illustrate a lot of the points that um, I want to drive home to, to this parent and some others. So I'm going to read a little bit from this email. It says, hey, Dan, um, to give you a little background, my son's now 14 years old. I'm looking for some advice. He's in eighth grade. He enjoys playing first base and pitcher. He's played these positions since he was eight years old, and he's worked really hard to be great at both of them. He's been one of the top two pitchers in his middle school, on his middle school team since we started playing there in fifth grade, and he enjoys working with a local pitching coach, and he seems to enjoy working on hitting by going to hit baseballs throughout the season with me. Over the past summers, he's tried to join a couple of competitive teams, and the coaches have turned out to be parents or kids that, or parents of kids that would not play on any other team had their dad not been the coach. There wasn't really any instruction. Many of the kids were there just filling spots on the rosters, and a lot of the son, a lot of the fun of the game, was really sucked out for both me and my son. You know, I thought I asked all the right questions of the coach before joining the team, but either I didn't ask the right ones, or the coach didn't understand what I was asking. The kids would basically run practice in which there was no instruction. The coach would use the same lineup every game, and there were many times you could tell the coaches would favor their sons, despite the abilities of other players. Um, by the end of the season, they were using the games as tryouts for players for next season, which got old quick, and needless to say, my son did not pitch much, nor did he play first base. Um, 
his, uh, so this goes on a little bit longer. Um, and he basically says, he's, I'm now, I'm now to the point where my son does not enjoy playing baseball. I feel that deep down he still has a love for the game because he's still interested in reading books about the game and different players, but the fun of playing uh, on teams is fading. I feel partly responsible for this because I thought we were doing the right thing. I know ultimately it's his choice to play or not, and I'm fine with his decision, but I don't want it to be because of a bad couple of bad coaches. So after all that, I have two struggles. First, is there a way that you've found to deal with bad coaches and still keep kids interested in the game? You know, should I volunteer where I can then have more control over the situation, even though the politics may cause other issues? Secondly, I know that time with my son would stop playing. Or secondly, I knew that the time that my son would stop playing baseball would come sooner or later. And I guess I didn't figure it would end this way. It's been a big part of our lives for so long. What is your advice to parents to help deal with that? So again, I thought this was a really great email. Um, you know, I think it, it's tough as a parent to watch the game objectively. I think everyone out there, it's hard to, to not have some rose-colored glasses sometimes with you know your own son's ability. But I felt this email was was pretty objective, and and it really just to me as a as a father looking for some way to keep his son's passion for the game going. Because 100%, we have kids that come through our facility like this where you can see they just get worn down, you know, politics at school, you know, we're just, just ruin it for them, you know. And you can't control your, you know, your junior high coach. You can't control your high school coach. A lot of these things you're just going to have to deal with, you know. And a lot of players go to want to play college baseball and they run into coaches that they don't love who maybe don't see anything positive in them and, you know, maybe they just run them out of out of town or whatever. And there's there's good fits and bad fits at every level of baseball, and it's a it's a situation that's like I said, common to many people and many many families. And it's unfortunately not going away. You know, baseball is different than it used to be. There's more there's more nepotism and quote unquote daddy ball than there ever was. Where you know, if you have a kid who really wants to play, but maybe he's not that good. His dad might start his own team just so he can play most of the innings. You know, we've had that in our own town with parents completely fed up with nepotism and wanting, you know, impartial third-party coaches. So in our senator's organization, we have uh, two fathers who are coaches with us right now, and they both do a great job. Actually, only only one right now. Um, we had two uh, dad coaches last year, but they're extremely objective, great guys, and they've done a very, very good job at being impartial and encouraging to everyone while spreading, you know, playing time and, and our methodology, you know, the way we want it. So it, it, we've been really fortunate with that, but it's an issue that you run into because it's not fair, you know, when one kid gets to play simply because his dad writes the lineup card. So I want to jump in and I'll come back and sort of answer some of these questions at the end. But I want to kind of jump in and, and share some of my experiences. Um, and today, I'm going to go through the amateur part of my career. So for whatever reason, I don't have tons and tons of, of memories from my youth. I think I'm so tunnel visioned with things at times that, that my brain, while it's working on one new thing, it just like just deletes <laughs> old stuff. I'm not really sure. But a lot of my childhood memories, I have to be kind of have to be jostled back into into fruition. But Anyway, my first coach was John Resto. He's probably listening to this. So, hey, John, if you're out there. Um, and I'll be perfectly honest, uh, John's an awesome guy. And I know for a fact these couple of things. I know that he, I know that I loved playing for him when I was a kid. I think I played 9-10. I think I played when I was 9 and 10 with him. And again, that's foggy. But I know I started playing when I was 8, 7 or 8. And then I, I shifted to travel ball, maybe at 11 or 12. So I played somewhere between 9 and 12 for John. And uh, he was the first coach that had an impact on me. And I don't remember almost anything he taught me. <laughs> I, I saw him this past summer. I know he taught me how to pitch. Um, and uh, I fell in love with pitching. And I fell in love with baseball really quick. He was really positive. And one of the, the things that I do remember was that in high school as a freshman, I decided I wanted to go for the football team. I never played football before in my life. I just thought it was cool. And I thought I'd be like a good quarterback because I had a kind of a rocket arm as a freshman. And uh, he told my dad, he said, if, you know, he, he's like, I think Dan could pitch in the, on the USA Olympic team one day. And if he hurts his arm, 
playing stupid football. I'm never going to speak to him again. <laughs> and I, I remember that. And that was in the back of my head. And it planted this little seed. And I didn't quit football because of him. I quit football because I had this weight awakening like three weeks into football that I'm like, why am I doing all these calisthenics? I don't even know how to play football. I don't even know if I like football. So why am I doing this in this gym? Uh, I feel extremely out of place here and I quit. So call me a pansy or whatever, but uh, football wasn't for me. And he was right. I like baseball was always my calling. It was always my passion. And I didn't, I didn't want to get hurt for that. I haven't skied my whole life. I've never done any of these dangerous things because I don't want to tumble down a mountain dislocate my shoulder and, and my baseball career. So there are a lot of things I put on a hiatus. And I think that was the first time I ever was presented with the idea that, oh yeah, I'm not immortal. And that if I really want to play baseball, I have to give up maybe some certain things to make sure that I stay healthy enough to do it or that, you know, it's still a priority for me. So John, I wish I had more memories to pull <laughs> to elaborate on your amazing coaching. But, you know, the number one thing I remember from him and my first, you know, legitimate baseball experience was that whatever he did, he excited me about the game. And that was enough where I took off. You know, I, I love baseball. And I, I think I loved it in part because he was my coach and he helped all of us have fun and enjoy the game. And that was a really big, big piece of as a as a young player just starting out. So after that, I uh, I got hooked up with travel ball when I was, I guess, 12, 13, 14. And this was for the the Yankee Rebels with my summer team that was in the Baltimore Metro League. And that was the best uh, the best ball, baseball league in all around Baltimore, Maryland, where I grew up. And so playing Metro meant you were kind of a somebody. And if you played on one of the better Metro teams, you're like pretty legit. So I played on one of the middle tier teams. I was pretty good, but I was never that kid who I'd be on the team that, you know, we were cost all this money and we traveled all these different crazy places and played all these different, you know, we went to East Cobb for one tournament, which is East Cobb's in Georgia. And I just remember seeing players there. I think I was like 14, maybe just these grown men and hearing about how these kids were getting drafted. I'm like, I don't even know what drafted means, but I watched some kids just hit balls out and I'm like, good God, who are these people? Like, how do I compare against these guys? I have no idea. Um, I kind of felt like a fish out of water, but you know, that was an interesting experience for us. And to be honest, I don't remember anything about my Yankee Rebels coaches. Um, I know it was a positive experience. I had some really good friends on the team. We were a, a pretty good ball club. We were, I think like 25 and, maybe like 25 and 15 every summer or something like that, where we were, we were good, but not great. But, you know, I had a bunch of, a bunch of friends on that team. I think I played on the team throughout, through like 16, 17 years old and uh, in the summers. And I just really enjoyed it. And we were kind of a hard nosed squad. And, you know, from, again, from what I remember, I know we practiced and we played and we played good competition and um, I just continued to get better at the game. But, I don't, we didn't have lessons as a kid. We didn't have all this like one-on-one -on -one instruction. So I don't really remember where I learned some of the fundamentals. I played at the outfield. I wasn't an infielder, you know, in the outfield, you don't really learn all the, the high level techniques like infielders have to and all the footwork and all that stuff. You just sort of flag down fly balls and just throw it as hard as you can to the base when the guy is trying to run on you. So um, I was kind of a natural on the mound. I just like my body assembled itself well and I pitched the ball and just sort of did well. Um, and then in the outfield, I could flag some balls down. I played center field and was fast enough, I guess. And I was naturally a pretty decent hitter. So I don't really know when I honed some of the skills and I was never, you know, an amazing prospect. I was a walk-on in college. I was a recruited walk-on with no scholarship. So, you know, I did some things right, but I also wasn't, you know, the best player in my team or one my, any of my teams really, or in my, in my county. So the best I ever made was uh, honorable mention for all county honors. So um, that was the biggest chunk of my my amateur life, you know, up until 18, was playing on two teams that I just honestly don't remember a lot of the, uh, the coaching. But I knew that I was still placed in an environment where I could either do my own thing, like the Yankee Rebels, and just enjoy the game and enjoy my teammates and compete and play hard. Um, and I was in a good, like, learning environment when I was a youth player. And then in, in high school, you know, my coach, uh, John Swanson, he's still there at Beller High School. They won a couple of state championships the last 
five or six years. I think they won two in the last six years, which is awesome. Um, you know, he was a guy who stressed hitting. He loved to hit. We hit a ton. We hit, hit, hit. He was passionate about it. He was passionate about the game. Um, obviously, he still is passionate about the game. And, uh, you know, he taught me to be focused. And we always did station work. We're hitting off the tee. Then we're going to soft toss. Then we're going to whiffle balls. Then we're going to BP. You know, then we're throwing our bullpens. And, you know, our practices were very focused. We had limited gym time just because every other team had to use the gym. And uh, we got down to work. We worked hard. And, you know, we didn't run us into the ground. Like, we ran and we conditioned. But it was uh, – the practices were well, well run and they were quick and they were to the point. And it was the first, it was my first real memory of really strong focused practices. And, you know, I developed into a pretty decent hitter. I think I hit around 350 most of my high school career and played varsity as a sophomore. But, you know, that, that was a good learning experience for me and, and they're still doing really well at, you know, in Bel Air. And, so, you know, all the way up until age 18, I had coaches that helped me succeed. You know, they put me in a good learning environment. They fostered good team chemistry. I was never in this place where I never had a chance or I never, you know, I got beat down. You know, my mom was telling me <laughs> earlier today how when she was uh, when she was a girl, she loved playing softball. And, but one of her PE teachers told her that she ran like the fat girls. You know, it's like stuff like that is just ridiculous. That someone would say that to a young kid, you know, what good does that do? I don't know. But I was fortunate just to have coaches that never put me down. They would get on me if I didn't, you know, do things the right way. But at the same time, they just put me in a place to, to succeed and get my work in. You know, and I was a kid who I didn't talk back. I always respected authority. And, you know, so I just did my work. And I never liked practice, but I liked baseball and I wanted to, play and get better so you know I was always in a good environment I was lucky for all that but for me my real formative years came in college so after I got a uh, a chance you know I pitched in front of coach Jankishay who I think retired maybe six years ago from the University of Maryland Baltimore County I threw for him one night and he said that you know because of my breaking ball which was the best he'd seen in 20 years that he'd have a spot for me, no, no scholarship money, and my my command was below average. My fastball was well below average. I threw seventy eight to eighty one, and uh, he said, "But with that curveball, if I got better and threw harder and pulled myself up to the Division one level, that I might have something because I had such a plus second pitch that I could throw for strikes." So I was on my way, and from that point, kind of my switch flipped, and I uh, I was listening and open to anything that would help me get better because I didn't want to get a nine to five job. And at this point it became clear that that was what was at the end of the next four years. So there were two, there are three major influences. Well, at UMBC, there were three major influences at UMBC and there was one major influence in the summer. So my head coach, John Jankasay is a great guy and he um, is a Christian man and he, uh, just preaches good character values 24-7. And, you know, I think all of us as college players scoffed at it. But as soon as we graduate, just like he said we would, you know, we look, look back and we were fortunate. We all realized that we were fortunate to have a coach that did genuinely care about us and did genuinely want to make us into men of good character more than anything else. So he gave us the chance to succeed. You know, he was never a guy who would put you down, but he would also put you on the spot. So when I was a freshman, I forgot my practice shirt, you know, that classic. We had like the classic old school gray sweatpants, like Heather gray, light Heather gray sweatpants and light Heather gray UBC cotton t-shirts. You know, it was like we were in the 70s, but I forgot my practice t-shirt one day for, for uh, fall practice. And all I had was this green t-shirt that was in my, on my book bag, I guess. So I show up to practice. I didn't realize I didn't have it. And then obviously I was out of uniform. And uh, he, instead of making me run, he made me sit in the infield grass between the plate and the mound while the rest of my team ran for 30 minutes. They ran around the warning track. So every you know three minutes or so, they would come back past me, past the plate, and uh, 
just like he laughing, you know, he laughed about this down the road as he, we talked about it, you know, later years. And he said, yeah, you know, guys always just beg me like, please let me run, let me run. But, you know, every time my teammates would circle back, you know, giving me dirty looks that I had done this to them, it drove home the message that, you know, I was accountable to them and that it wasn't, it wasn't a small deal being out of uniform. And I'm still a stickler about that now. Um, guys who play for us know that I will immediately spot a guy who's out of uniform. It even irks me when someone, when there's leeway in the dress code and someone always chooses to be the one guy who's wearing his hoodie when everyone else is not, or one guy who's wearing, you know, a different practice shirt that's acceptable than everyone else. You know, it's like some guys always want to be the individual. Like they can't, they can't handle being part of the crowd. And that was one of the things Coach Jay always imparted to us that it's, it's a, a positive thing to allow yourself to be part of the crowd, that you can find other ways that are more constructive than just the way you look, than the way you dress. You know, the way you handle yourself and conduct yourself will always help you stick out. And that was a, a lesson that served me well throughout the rest of my career. So, you know, he was, he was a hitter in his career and, um, you know, not a huge pitching guy. So he gave us some guidance, but not a lot. So a lot of the pitching stuff I, I figured out on my own. I figured out in summer ball, and then I figured out in uh, my fourth year when we got a pitching coach um, named Tim O'Brien, and Tim was, he's had a long career. Um, he was the USA, Team USA pitching coach for, I think, both like junior high and high school levels at different points. He's been a scout. He was a Division One player himself. I think he's a Niagara alum. And uh, just an overall, just like, guy loves baseball more than anyone you've ever met and uh and he's one of those guys who's super duper nice and he'll find the bright side in pretty much everything you know if you listen to one of my early podcasts uh he was the one who orchestrated me throwing out the uh, first pitch year that I graduated in an arm sling so my fourth year my fifth year I came back rehabbing Tommy John surgery and I tried so hard to make it to the very end of the season where I could pitch you know, just throw one inning before my college career ended, and it just wasn't in the cards. But the last home game of the year, he arranged for me to throw out the first pitch, the ceremonial first pitch, which is a really, a really nice gesture. Um, and it's even a little hard for me to talk about it when I bring it up. But you know, Tim's just that kind of guy, and he's unfortunately the the guy who will always say that you know, anytime he's talking to you, he'll say that he just learns so much from you, and that. He doesn't know nearly as much as you or anyone else. He's always just, he just always wants to learn. Well, he knows a ton of stuff. I mean, he's super knowledgeable. He's absorbed stuff from everyone. He's been around coach, scout, player, all of it. So, Tim, if you're listening, you don't have to tell everyone that you don't know anything. You know lots and lots of stuff. And he was a great mentor for me, he helped me rehab. And, um, you know, I learned my first real pitching drills from him, to be honest. I mean, I, I can't remember a time prior to that when I had a pitching drill that I used as part of my routine before Tim. I just, I didn't learn a single drill, which is kind of baffling when you think about it. But I was 21 and I didn't have a process. I didn't have any of that stuff, which I preach to nine-year-olds. Um, you know, I fight that battle every day. I say, when you warm up in this season, when I'm not there, Timmy, 11-year-old, you do this drill, then you do this drill, then you do this drill, then you play catch from your windup, then you do your co-hops, whatever it is. But I preach professionalism and having a routine over and over and over, just beating a dead horse over and over and over. And uh, But again, until age 21, like somehow that was just overlooked. I don't know. I don't know how I learned to pitch, um, but I do know for a fact that the first drill I was ever taught was the rocker drill which was taught to me by Tim, and I think that was at age 21. So, you know, he helped me remake my mechanics and, and come back better after Tommy John, which was crucial because if I didn't come back better, I would have never gotten the next seven years of my career. So, you know, Tim was a, was a huge influence. And, again, just someone supporting me when I needed it and just incredibly positive. But I didn't always need someone who was positive, so I had this sort of yin and yang um, <laughs> dynamic Tim was the guy who would always be ready with, you know, what did you learn? And just anytime I'd give him something that I'd learn, he'd just have wide eyes with amazement and just thank me that he 
that I gave him this new piece of knowledge to add to his book. Um, but my one of my biggest influences was my strength coach in college, Coach Cantor, and uh, he was he just was my drill instructor, and he just molded me into a person who was tough enough to withstand a lot of the adversity that I would face later on. So I didn't know then, but down the road, I was I was tough enough, and it was because of him. So when I was a freshman, I was clumsy. You know, I was this just kid who never really lifted a weight, who wasn't really a Division One athlete. I just ran I just kind of ran around and did my thing and didn't know what I didn't know. But you know, we would do cone drills and form running and weightlifting, and I'd never done any of that stuff. And I was apparently so says all my teammates. I saw my my best friend Andrew last week, and he was like, "Dude, how did you even make it past your freshman year?" He's like, "You were so bad at everything." Like when you want, when you ran cone drills, you were just the worst. I'm like, I don't know. I, and I, I don't know, but I know that anytime I didn't do it right, I heard my name and it wasn't, you know, a general reminder. It was my name at the top of his lungs, get it right. And I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And if he did yell instructions, he would, it was so short and quick that I'd have to figure it out, you know, get your hips turned. Like, what does that mean? You know, sometimes he would pull me over afterwards and explain, but it was learn on the fly. It was like, again, like I was in boot camp and it was just expected that I knew. And if I didn't know, just get it done and figure it out. So for my entire college career, he rode me like that. And, you know, for the first couple of years, we didn't have any real strong rapport, except that I worked hard. And when he yelled at me, I just wore it and try to make the adjustment that he was yelling at me. So, and to me that was good enough because that's what I wanted. All I wanted was another workout from him or some advice on what to eat or, you know, I was in his weight room every day in his office bugging him for something. And he always gave it to me. He always gave it to me with attitude. He always gave it to me with some sort of, you know, insults, um, you know, or play on words with my last name or whatever. He would just you know, jokingly, you know, berate me, but, um, that was just sort of his brand of, of tough love. And when I graduated, you know, I think I went back every fall for the first five years of my career. And, uh, you know, we sat there and just sort of reminisced like, old, like old friends. So that was just sort of his way. And when I had my tough moments, you know, he was always there to, you know, he was always there to pick me up. So that was just a really important relationship. And it wasn't that he beat me down just to beat me down. He beat me down because he's an incredibly sharp guy and he must have seen that I needed it or that I could take it and that it was going to be good for me in some way. And it was. Um, you know, I, I never, I did, def I, I, I shouldn't say I never did, but, you know, it was kind of like in the movie uh, Kill Bill, he goes up to this, uh, he sends the uh, main character Beatrix to Pyme, who was Bill's mentor, taught him you know, everything he learned. And he said, if you flash Pyme one defiant eye, he will pluck it out. He said, so it doesn't matter what he says, you just take it, you learn from him because he's the best. And uh, if he accepts you, it's because he sees something in you. So anyway, she, she had a similar experience in that movie with this old crotchety, awful um, martial artist Pai Mei in her that chapter of that movie was called The, the Cruel Tutelage of Pai Mei but so Coach Kanner was sort of my Pai Mei but you know it, it toughened me up it made me into a man he taught me how to work he taught me how to make adjustments he taught me how to focus and he didn't he didn't accept anything less than a hundred percent of what I had and at that point as a high school kid who'd never lifted a weight who'd never done anything I didn't know what I had I didn't know what I was capable of um, but I quickly became, you know, one of the strongest guys in the weight room and I was never, I don't think a leader until maybe like my senior year because I was never vocal. Like I, I never considered myself like one of those guys, but I did what I was supposed to do. If you watched me and you looked up to me, great. Um, but I was never, I never considered myself a leader in the same sense that I felt like leaders are kind of pulling the team together and, and doing things to you know, to make sure the rest of the group is on task. That wasn't me. I just wanted to reach my own goals. I wanted to help the team. I wanted to be a good player. 
Um, but I did it for me and, you know, I worked hard and I kept my head down and that was about it, but he taught me how to do all that stuff. So it wasn't an easier relationship. Um, and at times I, re I resented him, but I never resented the fact that he got me where I wanted to go. And that was always his goal. That was, his goal wasn't to be best buddies. It wasn't to be any of this. We had a extremely strong mutual respect and we are friends, but that wasn't our relationship. Our relationship was coach and player and, uh, and he did what was necessary to get the best out of me. So that was one of the, one of the more different relationships compared to many of the other coaches that I'd had. And the other coach um, during my college career was a guy named John Duffy, who's he's out there somewhere doing something in the Philadelphia area. But the Duff man uh, played, I think, parts of seven seasons of pro ball, drafted by the Red Sox, and then um, played for maybe like 10 different teams in independent ball and was one of those salty old vets who is just like a classic minor league guy in the sense that he knew the game he experienced all different levels of it he loved the game he loved to compete he was good at teaching it he didn't accept nonsense um but he could banter with the best of you and he uh he was just i don't mean that in a stereotypical that he's like baseball basic kind of way he just was when you think of a guy who's been around he was kind of like like the uh like the Crash Davis from Bull Durham. He was just that old, that older, savvy, veteran player who just knew the game in and out from every single aspect, from on the field, off the field, personal life, you know, at the bars, you know, in the weight room, just everything. He knew how to be a professional. He knew what it meant from every single sense of the word, how to conduct yourself, how not to conduct yourself, how to be ready to play you know, what your job is, all that stuff. And so I had him as my summer coach for the Silver Spring Tacoma Thunderbolts of the Cowardton Senior League. And he, uh, he was different because he was younger. He was maybe 35 at the time. And he was the first guy besides Tim who really taught me on the fly what high-level pitching was. And, and I don't know that I pitched enough under Tim because I was hurt almost every year. Um, and Tim didn't have a lot of control on UMBC. He was a volunteer assistant and was just, he'd, you know, he'd coached for 20 years and he didn't have a, a prominent role where coach was going to let him impact the game. So, but Duff was our manager for summer ball and he controlled all of it. So it was the first time that we learned how to pitch, how to hold runners, what was good enough and what wasn't, what, what it was like to be a professional, what it means to have a, a pregame routine and a postgame routine and and what you're expected to do um, getting to the ballpark. And, you know, his roles and the coach of the team before, who was a, a teammate of his, that's how he got the job um, my second year with the T-Bolts. If you were there one minute late for, you know, our report time, like you were gone that day and you're suspended for the next game. Like there are no excuses, and that's exactly how it is in pro ball. So he was just this salty old guy who, well, again, not that old, mid-30s, but he was this salty veteran guy who'd been around, and I wanted, I wanted what he had. I wanted to play like that. I wanted to be this competitive guy who hated to, to lose. Um, I wanted to play pro ball more than anything, and I just wanted his knowledge. I wanted what he had, and I wanted to know. And, you know, we had these pitcher meetings. We just did all these other things that we'd never done before that I didn't do in high school, that I didn't do in college. You know, and I remember we singled out this one player and I'll never forget it because it was the first time that I was extremely focused on a hitter's tendencies. And it was this, uh, this guy, his name is Brandon McClanahan. I think he played for Louisville. He started out, out in junior college. You can probably find him on um, baseball reference somewhere because he was a, a very good player. But he had super quick hands, super quick bat, a lot of pop. And he was just a known Deadpool hitter that he used his really fast hands and his really fast bat to just yank anything he could and just like a flash it'd be down to the left field corner or over the left field fence so this kid tore up the league against us he played for the best team the the Yalses Maryland Orioles team which was run by a, a scout of the Orioles they got all the best players and they got high school kids throwing 95 96 you know Justin Grimm who pitched for the Cubs he pitched for that team 
um, you know, LJ Hose, who was in the big leagues with the Astros and the Orioles. And I mean, just countless, they got all the high draft picks, whether they're high school kids or college kids from the area to play for that team. And McClanahan was of the same caliber. So I just remember all the other teams, he just beat them up, just beat them up. But with us, he hit maybe like a hundred, maybe like a buck 50. We destroyed him. We owned that guy because of what Duff told us to do. He's like, look, when a guy pulls the ball like that, you don't pitch him away. You don't shy away from him. You ram it in as far as you can in on the plate because if he can hit it with his barrel, it'll be foul and it'll get jammed and he won't be able to extend his hands the way he wants to. All he wants to do is pull pitches down the middle or on the outer half. He wants to pull them into the gap. And if you throw it on the inner third, he'll pull it right down the line where it might be foul. So if you get on the inside corner or the black, or if you miss it on the inside where it's a ball, he cannot possibly hurt you. He'll pull it in the parking lot foul. He'll hit foul line drives all day and be frustrated, but he won't be able to get his arms extended, and he won't be able to do what he wants to do. And it was spot on. It was 100% correct advice, and you could see the frustration in this kid's face as we hit him with pitches, not on purpose, but by accident, and threw literally every fastball from the T-bolts was on the inner black of the plate against him. I mean, sometimes he would look at us, I think he beckoned at one of our pitchers, like, just throw me, you know, throw it over the plate sometime. But we owned that kid because we'd break his bat. He'd pull, he'd pull foul line drive screamers at the third base coach over and over and over and not make an adjustment. Um, and he couldn't do anything about it. And we just destroyed him. And that was this incredibly fun learning moment for us because you saw the, the consequences. You saw the cause and effect for the first time. And it was like this big light bulb went off in my head. Like, wow, like there's so much more to pitching than just, you know, you just throw it maybe on the corner. You always go low and away, which was kind of our philosophy at UMBC. We always pitched away. We never pitched in. And uh, suddenly I was pitching inside, and it was visibly frustrating a hitter and getting one of the best hitters in the league who still hit like 390 against the whole league despite hitting like 100 against us. You know, it was it was ruining this guy, and it was making him frustrated, and it was – it was just fascinating that there was this whole world that opened up because of him. And it wasn't just that, you know, there were other instances where, you know, we learned what it was like to be a teammate. So, you know, stuff like this goes on in college ball and, or college summer ball, I should say, but we had a teammate from North Carolina who was our closer, who thought it was real funny to have a flask with him during the game. So he would start to drink sometimes in like the seventh or eighth inning. And our coach wasn't in the dugout, he was out there coaching. And uh, so we all saw this, and we were pissed about it. We're like, he's going to have to go in to close the game. And sure enough, one day he did. He was just taking pulls of whiskey off of his flask at maybe like the 6th, 7th, and 8th innings. And then sure enough, he went in to close, and sure enough, he blew the save. And we were pissed about it. And later, maybe a couple weeks later, you know, this kid Andrew and I, who were we're close with Duff, who we would just talk with him a bunch as much as we could, really, like before and after games. You know, we, we told him that, and it wasn't to rat this kid out, but we just, just told him the story because, you know, we were heavily invested in that team. Like, we loved that team. And he's like, that's on you guys. He said, that's not on me. He's like, and it's not your place to come tattle on him and tell me. He's like, that's your guy's job to handle that situation. The coach isn't mommy and daddy. The coach is coach. And players have to police themselves to a certain degree. And that's 100% of the time where you guys should have policed that situation. You guys should have taken care of it. And it should have never become an issue. And he was right. He was 100% right. There's a certain amount of accountability that has to be taken by the players. And until that point, no one had ever told that to me. And I knew that. And you know, I feel like intuitive people, intuitively people know that stuff. That when you're part of a team, you know, you take ownership in it. But some guys are like that. Some guys will rise to that and they'll take that leadership role and they'll get on they'll get on their peers when their effort's not good enough or whatever, their conduct's not good enough. But no one had ever told us that. And I felt disappointed in myself that I hadn't done something about it. And that was a moment that I, obviously I haven't forgotten. It's over 10 years ago and I'll never forget because it was, it, you know, that's a story that just sums up who he was that it's like, look, I'm not going to go suspend him. I'm not going to go make this a big deal. You guys should have taken care of it. You guys didn't. So now it's over. We can't get that game back. We lost it because you guys didn't do anything about it. And that's that. So 
you know, he was a big influence on teaching me how to be a professional, teaching me how to be a teammate, teaching me what it, you know, what it was like to be a leader in a clubhouse and what's expected of you. So when I got to pro ball, you know, I, I combined all this stuff, you know, I had positivity in my corner from coach Jay and, and Tim O'Brien and my youth coaches, you know, pulling for me. Um, and I had toughness built up from coach Canner and coach Duffy. And I had some ideas about professionalism, how to conduct myself from, from coach Duffy. So, you know, with all these things, they, they, I slowly pieced together enough to keep going and to kind of be on cruise control. You just try to get enough to get past the breakers, but then you can just keep paddling and not keep getting beaten down because you don't have the knowledge and you don't know how to conduct yourself. You don't know, you know, how to have a routine. And there's players that make it a pro ball like that. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to talk to teammates. They don't know what their role is in the clubhouse. They don't know what the coach takes care of and what you take care of. They don't know how to have a routine. They don't know how much fun they can have off the field and still be ready to play. You know, you're not robots. You don't have to go back to your hotel room every night and, and, and drink water and, and eat broccoli to be a great ball player. You can enjoy, you know, some of the nightlife and some of this other stuff and still be a great player and get everything out of you and out of your career that you want. So, you know, those were just really important years. You know, my college years, they were very formative and those four influences um, all impacted me in, in very different ways. So now as I kind of double back, because um, I'm going to talk about some of my, my pro coaches in a, in a separate podcast, but as I double back to this email, you know, it's, it's really tough to give advice on what to do when coaches are sucking the fun out of the game and, and how to get it back. And I think really the only, the only shield you have, because you need someone to ignite, you know, that passion. You need someone to, you know, I read, I think it was the, uh, the sports gene where they talked about Anna Kornikova and how in this tiny have nothing town in Russia, suddenly thousands of young girls were becoming astoundingly good at tennis because Anna Kornikova came from that, that little town, that little, this little crummy concrete wall, dilapidated tennis club that was barely even recognizable as a tennis club. But she made it out there, became this star, and suddenly every girl loved and wanted to be great at tennis because of her. She was the spark for this whole generation, this whole lineage of excellent, excellent tennis players. And sometimes you just need that one coach to give you that spark. And so, it, you know, if that light's starting to go out, you just have to find something to keep it going. Because you never know, that next checkpoint, you know, maybe this young man makes it to high school and has a coach that can, can reignite him again, you know, and there's got to be something, whether it's just his summer team, maybe it's finding, you know, a new local instructor to do lessons with who keeps him, keeps him going, keeps the passion alive, just tells him that it'll, you know, that there's, there's better things perhaps ahead of the next checkpoint and just trying to see what comes next. Like, can you get to, can you get to high school? And can you see who your coaches are there? You know, what new players might you have where you can bond with these guys? And, and maybe there's something bigger than just the coach and the coach doesn't impact you so much. Because I know with a lot of my teams, I always felt insulated from the coach. You know, in, in pro ball, if you've ever listened to episode 13 of this podcast, that was one of the worst days of my career where a coach just singled me out, embarrassed me, and it was just humiliating. And uh, I'd never felt so alone in a clubhouse. I never, I never wanted to quit baseball until that moment because of the way that coach made me feel. But even then, I didn't feel negativity on that team. There was definitely tension because of the coach, the way he ran his ship. Um, you know, it, was, it was not a great environment, but guys find ways to insulate themselves from that as they get deeper into baseball because you can't control your coaches. But if you have a passion for the game, you learn to find you know, your source of light in whatever it is, you know, maybe it's just that you have a couple of buddies that you just bond with and, you know, the coach can get on you, whatever, you're just going to let it roll off your back and you keep doing your thing because you've got long-term goals and you're not going to let him take those from you. But at the same time, when you're young, you don't know what you want with life or you don't know what you want out of life. 
it's tough to say, I'm going to keep going with this when you don't know how good you are. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know if it's going to continue to be bad because when things are bad, it's hard to hard to hold out hope sometimes that they're going to turn around because what evidence is there that it will? But there's always some kind of hope. And I think it's just a matter of finding the right influences. And maybe it's, again, another team. Maybe it's there's some coach out there. Maybe it's just some good teammates. And maybe it's just trying to do more baseball activities, go to the batting cage more often, read more books, watch more movies, whatever it is, and try to just keep that spark from completely going out. Um, I wish I had better advice than that, but hey, you know, it's just tough. And obviously like with my own team, I can tell you what I do. You know, we practice at Warbird Academy every Sunday and you know, our facility's not, it's not enormous. We can't do full ground balls. You know, we're limited to a lot of hitting. Um, you know, we're, we're not starting bullpens yet for another week or two. So we're doing a lot of hitting centric practices. We do a lot of glove work and, and short fielding stuff, but you know, we do a lot of repetitious work because really that's what make good, makes good players. It builds discipline and, you know, you need repetition to hone your skills. So I'm not huge on tons and tons of variations and tons of crazy drills. I just want to get really good at, at fundamentals and the right things. So, um, and we want to build a, a good mindset. But at the end of every one of our practices, we have a hitting game that we play for 20 to 30 minutes because A, there's a role in it. So we have... We break them into two teams and we play innings. So we have a batting order. You go through. We either do front toss or we do live BP. And kids in one inning, maybe everything that's opposite field is fair game. And if you hit, if you pull the ball or hit up the middle, you're automatically out. And after that, we just we hit and we play uh, we play them all out. So if you hit a line drive that would go right at the shortstop, you're out. You hit a ball that looks like it's a double, it's a double. You know, and if there's two runners on, you hit a hard ground ball up the middle, then they score. So we just play a game like that and it builds, it, it keeps kids competitive. And there's just, there's just a difference when you're competing, when you're playing a game. And I miss all those things. You miss those when you get older, when baseball's a job, the, the love that you have for it's very different. Um, but just getting back to those games, you know, I'll, I'll hit on the teams that the teams are uneven. And I'll be that seventh man. Cause we usually have two seven man teams and it's fun for me. Like I don't hit, but um, I take my hacks, and it, it it rejuvenates the passion for baseball even in me, just that little 20-minute, 20 25-minute session. So just fun stuff like that. So, you know, if, if that light's starting to go out, maybe you just have to make your own fun, go out, you know, do more BP, have fun games, and just try to find something that's going to, again, keep that passion alive and remind him that baseball can be fun and that it is fun and that if you just keep going with it, that, you know, you can stay on course, you know, as far as like volunteering to coach and, and trying to get more control in it, I'm not sure that's the way to go. You know, there's, there's lots of things where, you know, I'm not sure that if things aren't getting run right with your teams uh, or with your son's coach, that the solution is jumping in as a coach yourself. You know, it could be, but at the same time, I think players perform best when they're not looking over their shoulder constantly to impress anyone, you know, whether it's their teammates, their coach, they should want to do well for themselves and they should want to do well to help their team win and to build the respect of their peers and their coaches. But at the same time, um, I never played for my dad and I'm glad for that. And I've seen guys that have, and I've seen them have good relationships. And I've seen guys that have played for the dads that it destroys their relationship. So I'm not sure that trying to get more control of a bad situation is the way to go. I'm sure a lot of positives could come from it, but you know, the solution to me is, you know, players always need to just practice more. Whether they have team practice, it doesn't matter how rigorous a team's practice schedule is nowadays, or they seem to pale in comparison to the old days where teams were practicing constantly, kids played ball on their own. Um, you know, and I think getting out between practices and between games, you know, one-on-one, you know, father-son or, or whatever is going to make probably a bigger impact where then you can control it. You can just steer it in a direction where he gets what he's not getting from his practices. He gets what he's not getting um, from his, from his games, you know, and with that, maybe he just continues to progress. He continues to get better and he continues to find some joy in baseball. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think it's a parent's job really just to support 
their son and you know to not push him in any given direction so we all make our own mistakes as we grow up and whether we choose to play a sport or we choose to play it as far as we can or whether we choose to to realize our potential or not it can be i think troubling for a lot of parents as they watch and they see more in their kids than maybe they're getting out of themselves oh if he only practiced more only if he did this more you know, if he just lifted weights more consistently, if he just ate more, you know, he'd get bigger and stronger and then he'd go play off or go off and play, you know, the college baseball level that he wants. But really, unfortunately, I, you can't build intrinsic motivation by by nagging or, or giving constant reminders and feedback. And even with my lessons and my instruction, I don't I don't give feedback on every time I see a, a poor rep or or a bad swing or an ugly, ugly changeup or an ugly curveball, you know, there's a certain amount that I just let go by and I want to see if they figure it out, if they make adjustments. And so with all this stuff, you know, you have to see how they're going to respond to it as well. And uh, because it has to come from them. You, you can't get intrinsic motivation from anyone but yourself, um, obviously. But, you know, again, for me, coaches brought it out of me. And when I finally realized that I wasn't as good as I wanted to be, that's when it really when it really clicked and, and things started to change and I started to develop a work ethic. And because I developed it, I developed it because I needed it, because I wanted to accomplish something. That's what really carried me through the tough times and it's what gave me the motivation to put in all the extra work that I did to try to make something of myself. So, you know, it's, it's not easy to watch someone that you love overlook good advice or, or put in less work than they could and, and maybe fall short of their potential. But I think at the end of the day, all we can do is be supportive, you know, give our wisdom where we can, um, give advice when it's asked for, and then just sort of let the chips fall, you know, where they may. Anyway, that's it for today. This was episode 33 of Dear Baseball Gods, and I appreciate you you being here with me. And on uh, next week's episode, we're going to cover a little bit more about coaches and, and dive into, you know, some of these bigger issues that are out there in the baseball world.